0: Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of School of Startups, where we talk to successful tech entrepreneurs on how to start and scale their businesses. On today's episode, we'll be talking about what are some advantages of bootstrapping your startup and still being able to get acquired. Today, we have our guest, Einar Volset, with us. Einar is uh, currently the founder and general partner at TinySeed, a remote-based startup accelerator designed for early-stage Bootstrap SaaS Founders, which provides funding, community guidance, advice, and mentorship. He is also the managing partner of Discretion Capital, a technology-enabled investment bank focused on M&A, due diligence, and strategic partnerships development for tech and technology-enabled service businesses. know was previously a professor of computer science at Cornell University. He is a serial entrepreneur who founded many companies like Remail, which was acquired by Google in 2010. Octopus Mercantile, and Apt Aftercare, a company which was built from scratch with zero outside funding, uh, which was completely bootstrapped from zero until it was uh, acquired in 2016. Einar was also CEO at Left Coast R&D and is an advisor at Trigger.io and BioMe.me. Um, so huge accomplishments and impressive achievements so far. Uh, welcome, Einar, and uh, thank you again for taking the time today and joining me for being on the show. Do you have anything else to add to that? Or?
1: No, that's fine. Thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, I'm. I'm the co-founder of Tiny Seed. My partner will be pissed off if I if you call me the founder.
0: <laughs> I'm <laughs> doing right, it Rob. with my
1: partner, with my partner Rob Ball.
0: Okay, cool. That's uh, Rob, right from from Drip. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, you know, starting from the beginning, can you share about it? Seems you know you've a lot of accomplishments as an entrepreneur. When was the moment that you kind of decided that I wanted to become an entrepreneur? If you remember that time,
1: um, I think it was when I was doing my PhD. Actually, it was it was. Um, When Paul Graham actually PG started uh, Writing his essays, you know, I guess back in the early 2000s it must have been and Just like he was one of the first people who wrote like This is doable, you know, like this is something you can do like you just start the thing and you build something People want and then you charge for it. And that's how you make money, (laughs) which I don't know like you go through um, you know classic education and things and there's always there's like a there's like a pipeline right it's like you go through school you do good at school then you get to another school and you do good at that school and then you you know you get into a good university you get good grades and then you get a job somewhere and and that's sort of it yeah um and it was really like when i was doing my phd that um you know his writing had had a uh, pretty profound Im- uh, impression on me in terms of thinking about what i wanted to do with my life I guess, I mean, it's sort of his fault that I've never really had a real job, I guess.
0: Okay. So direct from school to, to success. That's awesome. Well, I don't know about direct <laughs> to success,
1: but it's certainly like, I haven't had a real job to my mother's chagrin. So yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Every founder's dream. So I mean, every startup founder, I mean, they're excited about the idea of getting, you know, acquired by a big name brand. Um, I know you've had a couple of great exits with the companies you started. Do you, so, you know, from, you know, PhD to, you know, starting some companies, do you remember what it was like for you, those moments of like the day of like the transaction or, you know, after the, 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 the acquisitions or any of them?
1: Well, I think, I think the, the, the sort of strangest thing that I wasn't expecting is that, you know, once it was done, you know, certainly I remember this, from my last one, it's like, it doesn't take very long before you gotta do something else. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, I think a lot of people have this view that's like, oh, if I made you know this kind of money, then I would just do, you know, go to the beach or golf a lot. And it's just that's just certainly not in my DNA. Um, it certainly gives you freedoms in ways that, that perhaps um, you, you don't get in other in other sources. Uh, but um, but yeah, that desire to get back to work and do and build something new is, is pretty comes back pretty quickly.
0: So you just want to jump from one to the other. Do you remember how long that was before you started getting that itch and you're like, uh, I'm ready to go again? Uh,
1: Well, I think like the last one was 2016. And then I actually helped my wife set up where I live. She, she, We, we live on a small flower farm and help her set up like her farming business and, and things. So did that for a while and then sort of bummed around. And then I sort of got pulled into M&A work uh, probably within six months, actually, of that and sort of was just like, all right, this sounds like a challenge, you know.
0: Cool. Uh, and what's your take right now with, I guess, you know, with the COVID nineteen virus going on? Um, what's What's your, you know, take and experience on the current environment of the SaaS industry, and how's that affected your kind of investment strategy at, at Tiny Seed?
1: It hasn't. It hasn't actually uh, it, it affected it all that much. We still we still have our strategy. We, you know, we've just today actually announced our latest uh, twelve or thirteen investments for Batch Two. Mm-hmm. Um, Our thesis remains the same. Like it's realistically, the exit time for these companies is you know three to seven years out, and so hopefully by then this COVID thing will have blown over and things will mellow out a bit. So so it doesn't actually impact us all that much. Um, In terms of like what I've seen people, you know, SaaS businesses in particular do, it seems to be a breakdown of about sort of ten to fifteen, maybe twenty percent of companies are doing really badly. Typically, these are companies tied to industries that are cratering, so you know, travel or um you know anything like anything anything that's being shut down uh you know the industry itself obviously they're taking pretty severe hits um on the flip side there's probably another say 20 percent that are doing really well so these are things that are like they were at the forefront of the remote work or something relating to that like zoom is sort of the poster child but there are hundreds if not thousands of companies that sort of fit various niches where uh, you know, this acceleration to work from home has really helped them, and then I would I would say the other sixty percent, right in the middle, is probably doing. You know, they're down for sh- mostly like whether that's conversion rates, you know, plummeting, uh, you know, failing to land any deals or whatever. But so there may be five ten percent down MRR in April, maybe, uh, even though maybe, perhaps they were on a growth trajectory beforehand, right. but they haven't really seen the same kind of uh, sort of fatal or or near fatal um, outcomes to some of the worst that companies.
0: Have done. Makes sense. Yeah. I remember we were talking right before this uh, about the one podcast company you having your portfolio. I mean, imagine they're, they're in that top 20% at this at this stage.
1: I would say so. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for, for the remainder of the companies, like with this situation, um, let's say the 60 or 80% of the, of those companies, are you speaking or advising on your startups, uh, you know, how to, how to plan uh, on the short-term, midterm, long-term basis? Uh, for the strategy, or are you just kind of leaving that to them at this point?
1: Leaving a lot of it to them. Like you know, we're we're minority investors. We're not buyout funds. We don't we don't take a board seat. We don't operate like that. I've actually spent a disproportionate amount of my time in the last three or four weeks helping uh, our U.S. companies, at least, uh, navigate the sort of government PPP, EIDL type programs. Um, so that's been helpful, at least to a degree, uh, for a bunch of our companies. But like, you know, it's. it's there are all these people that are saying, like, oh, it's never going to be the same and everything has changed. And I'm like, well, yes, kind of. Yes and no. You know, I think certainly there'll be a number of companies that take a hit with this. But, you know, I, I don't fundamentally see, I don't fundamentally think companies should change their strategy based on this, at least not their long, medium to long-term
0: strategy. Mm, so just making some some changes on the on the short-term, mainly just to keep up for cash flow and whatnot.
1: Yeah, cash is king. I mean, I like most of these companies that we're, we're certainly we're investing in are quite, um, uh, quite frugal companies, you know, they're not typically your other they're just not your typical, you know, Silicon Valley venture based growth at all costs, you know, fundraise every 18 months or go off a cliff type companies. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are sort of uniquely positioned to just sort of hunker down and, and survive through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I keep joking, actually, that I wish we'd raised our fund too, because we already, because then we would have been in a perfect position as all these startup venture backed startups blow up left and right. Right. Um, but yeah, no, that's yeah, it's pretty much what's going on.
0: So I, I know you've done, I, I believe you've done both, right? You've bootstrapped several companies, and maybe you know you're pretty familiar with the the VC funding phase. You know, with Tiny Suit, you guys are you're focused with bootstrap companies. Do you do you ever make a recommendation specifically for any of the founders? Who say, okay, you know, you should actually go towards more. Raise VC capital, or you should remain uh bootstrapped.
1: Um, you, certainly. Like we think, probably about ten to maybe twenty percent of the companies that come through will realize that they have a bigger opportunity than perhaps they thought. Mm. And and in some cases, like you know, and that might be because they just didn't realize how big a the market they were going after, or because they pivoted in some way, shape, or form towards something bigger. And at that point, it, it, it may make sense to to go out and, and, and raise venture capital, and, and certainly we're very supportive of that. Like if that's if that's something that makes sense for the for the for the company and the team, then and the founder, then you know, <laughs> go do that. It makes a lot of sense to do so. Um, it's rare that well, I I don't think we would ever say like, hey, you you should stay. If, if a founder is determined to to go raise funding or whatever, uh, I don't think we're going to advise them to say, hey, you guys should stay bootstrapped. Um, it's sort of a founder decision more than anything else it's just important to us and i think in general this is true it's like it's important for us that founders understand that money isn't free (laughs) in a way and it's like you know if you take i don't know two million dollars on a 10 million uh pre, then certainly those investors are going to expect a kind of outcome um in order to get the kind of returns that they need for their portfolios Right. And so I think a lot of people are like chasing after the biggest possible valuation, and then they get snookered when they're like, "Oh, I have an offer for thirty million dollars for my SaaS business, which for most founders, if you haven't been you know diluted to hell, mm-hmm. um, is going to be a meaningful amount of money, you know, a life-changing amount of money." Um, but then they get snookered because they're like, "Well, listen, I paid twenty million valuation for my last investment round, so I'm going to block you for making this, you know, this sale or taking this acquisition offer." Right. And, and like a big part of what we're trying to do with tiny seed is sort of align investor and founder interest to the point where like, okay, even sub hundred million dollar exits can be meaningful for everybody. Um, that's very much what we're trying to do.
0: Mm. So you don't, you kind of give them a little bit more control in their, their decision-making, you know, not just thinking the short term, which a lot of people may look at, like let's raise capital and just look at short term, but you know, long-term what the implications could be. Right. And
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like, I mean, if you, it's, it's funny, we actually did a study on, um, uh, in, in order to prepare for our fundraising fund too. We were curious about like, uh, what percentage of, um, you know, how big an asset class is this set of companies sort of B2B SaaS companies that, you know, maybe bootstrap, maybe took a little bit of money, maybe took one round, uh, but then got the profitable and just drew on their own revenues. Like how many are there of those? Because I think, because my hunch was that, okay, so the mainstream press, you know, means you know, uh, TechCrunch, Recode, all those guys they usually report on like the high drama, high stakes, you know, uh, unicorn type companies or what's going on with them. And so we actually studied, we looked at, um, uh, about 3000 acquisitions, software acquisitions that were made in 2017, 2019, Mm -hmm. and then looked at like of those companies, uh, what percentage of um, actual acquisitions that were announced, uh, had any kind of mainstream, uh, tech coverage. And, um, about 93% of those acquisitions never got mentioned in the mainstream tech uh, market. And then we looked at like, okay, how many, um, and this is a study we're not quite done with, but we started looking at how of of the acquisitions, how many had traditional venture capital financing and the preliminary results show that only about a third did. So the other two thirds either bootstrapped or took a little bit of money or, you know, did something that it's almost impossible to figure out what they did. (laughs) Um, So it's a, it's a pretty significant, um, it's a pretty significant asset class.
0: Yeah. And I think most of us just aren't aware that that's an, I mean, they're just here, you know, what the typical startup, uh, you know, route is and they probably follow that. But, you know, there's another path that.
1: Yeah, I'm just going along. I mean, like, I'm I'm, um, sort of, at least I know uh, Sam Altman is the president now. I guess he was the CEO. I don't know. Maybe he's the chairman now. I can't figure it out. And he was saying in January, like, how to invest in startups. And <laughs> one of the things he said, which I fundamentally disagree with, is, like, you should never invest in anything that couldn't become $10 billion. <laughs> now, <laughs> if, if that, that just can't possibly be true. Or if it is, it's, it's a really uh, sad state of affairs for investment into every other company. Because, like, it is not long ago that the advice was you should not invest in anything other than something that becomes a unicorn. So $1 billion. So now it's ten billion dollars. So what's the next? Is it going to be a hundred billion dollars? Like you have to have a trillion dollar company? There's like four companies that are inve- worth investing in the whole world every that's year. That's right. Yeah, you got to be Elon Musk or Zuckerberg. Like, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and like, and it's I think in part it's because of you know there are certain dominant ways to think about investing and certain dominant approaches. Typically, you know, there are the safes uh, that that YC, which I went through and and, and love, but they came up with and it fits their model. But that's not the only model to do uh, early stage venture investments. And I actually think, uh, what we're trying to prove is that you could do a much wider set of, um, you know, you can, you can back a much wider set of companies and actually that set of companies is probably a much bigger asset class than the traditional venture capital is.
0: Makes sense. And uh, what do you, what is your guys's current investment criteria? What do you guys look for like in a, in a, in a winning startup? Cause I know you guys added, you said the 12, you know, new cohort today, which I think was announced, uh, you know, what was the winning f- uh, formula there?
1: We basically like we almost exclusively or exclusively so far invest in B2B SaaS companies. So that's what we we like in part because they have some pretty interesting uh, uh, sort of economic attributes. Once they get to a certain stage, they typically like my, my friends are in more traditional private equity, call me a liar when I tell them that like, oh, yeah, these have like 80, 90 percent gross margins and, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 percent free cash flow after that is a certain size. Um, and so we, we mostly care about and, and they're typically not winner take all uh, like in b to, b to c And so uh, we think and we think there can be an awful lot of them. Like people talk about you know automation and all this stuff. And I think people, when they hear the word automation, they always think about robots. But like, I think most of the quote unquote automation will actually be software um, that gets built in and around these various industries to make things more efficient. So we think there's a huge number of possible B2B SaaS businesses that are investable. And so we, we, we pretty much invest very broadly across that industry. Um, you know, we, we you know obviously we do the same stuff. We look at the team, we look at the market and we're not going to invest in something that's, you know, taps out at, you know, potentially for uh, with a hundred thousand MRR. Uh, but then again, like we, we look at a, a, at a much higher number of like a much wider spectrum of potential, uh, software businesses than most, I would say most early stage venture capital.
0: Yeah. I've seen your, your portfolio seems kind of very well diverse. Um, and so, you know, B2B SaaS companies, uh, you know, I think you, you guys want a little bit of traction. I think you said, you know, somewhere from 500 up to, you know, a couple of thousand dollars in revenue. Um, yeah,
1: we typically don't, we have done one or two, but we typically don't fund people who are pre-revenue or pre-product um just because like there's well it sort of de-risks it to a large degree sure yeah um and also um yeah we we think we think that's where our sweet spot is and we think there's an awful lot of people who are like consultants or they have a full-time job and then they start a side project because they see a real need in an industry they know something special about Mm -hmm. and those are the kind of things that 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 we tend to like um
0: and what, what are some suggestions you make to some of those early stage? Maybe they have, let's call it, you know, 500 MRR. Um, you said, you know, go back and, you know, make some changes or start gaining some initial traction before you, you say come back and we'll, we'll take a look at you again to get, you know. We, we, then yeah, we've done that.
1: You? Certainly we've done that. Like people applied in the first round and we were like, eh, just a little early, we'd like to see a little bit more traction and then come back and in some cases we've we let them into batch two.
0: Hmm. Is it just based off the revenue or is there usually something else that you look at that?
1: We look at—I mean, we look at revenue. We look at growth. You know, we, like I said, we look at the team, um, and it's like to a degree, it's sort of pattern matching on on sort of what we've seen in our community do well. You know, the, the in and around MicroConf, there's an awful lot of people who've done pretty well, uh, and so and we see that. And then uh, my work with Discretion also gives me an insight into, you know, the sort of thing that tends to work.
0: Nice. Uh, and then throughout your accelerator accelerator program, once they're accepted. What are some you know underrated resources that you share with the the startups that they can leverage and start using for their business?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's hard to replicate, but we have a, a pretty large roster of high quality mentors that we let them access, um, and you know, there's sort of like we're working on it right now. We're just working on this sort of playbook. What we found in batch one is that most, like, if you look at all the skill sets that all the founders have, and a given batch, they usually know everything at least on a one-on-one level, whether that's pricing or SEO or HR or whatever, yeah. or sales yeah. or whatever. But there's usually like holes in in everyone's, like somebody might know a lot about SEO, but not a lot about pricing, or they might know a lot about enterprise sales, but not a lot about, you know, whatever else. Um, so so we're basically putting together some of the stuff because, I mean, there's sort of a basic playbook that people should be aware of. Like there's certain things that are like, like, so, so a good example is pricing. It's like, if you're, like understand what you're doing, like, are you a high touch enterprise sales business or are you a self-serve, you know, trial with a free credit card or free trial with a credit card type uh, yeah. business? Because it's very hard to, to sort of work across those. Yeah. Like if you have a. Forty nine dollar a month plan, but it takes, you know, a three demos to close it, then you're not going to do well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I did the math with one of our batch companies uh, last year, it's like You know the three demos there's one person on the first demo there's like three people on the three to four three to five people on the second demo and there's two people on the third demo each demo is about half an hour or an hour and i was like how much do these people get paid a year and so they told me and i was like okay so that means that this company that before they even committed to working with you or or buying from you they spent more money in salaries for people demoing than you're going to charge them for a whole year
0: so Which, that doesn't make any sense, right? Your, your cost per acquisition is higher than your LTV without even spending anything yet.
1: Right. And it's like the amount of money that they're spending on just the salaries for people to sit in the demo is more money than they're going to pay you for a whole year. That tells me you're not charging it.
0: So was the pricing or do you think it was the just the product as it is? I think
1: it's the pricing. I mean, pricing? They, mm-hmm. this particular company, I think, doubled their prices three times in the last six months and had zero pushback. So. <laughs>
0: There you go. And then within your existing, you know, portfolio of companies, you know, we talked about, you know, pattern matching. Somehow you know, you see some level, different levels of growth and success and, and, you know, growth rates. Can you pinpoint and share what differentiates like the top performing companies from the others? If, if any, is it like, you know, the product, what did you say is the team was just kind of luck in the market that they, they just picked? I, I, I think it, to a
1: large degree it's luck. Um, like if you happen to stumble into something that really resonates, I, I do think that's, you know, super helpful. I, I, I don't necessarily see a direct correlation between certain kinds of behavior or, or go to market or whatever and success. Okay. I think there's so many moving parts that you sort of have to, you have to be a little lucky in order in order to really start to grow quickly.
0: Mm, interesting. Um, and what, when and why did you move from serial entrepreneur? So you've had some couple of, you know, success back to back, which is kind of, you know, you've proven yourself. And then he moved to an advisor investor role with tiny seed and also discretion capital. Um, yeah. What was the kind of thought process or decision making at that point? So you kind of got it. was,
1: there wasn't much of a thought process. No. <laughs> it was like, I did this and then I got pulled into the m work, uh, just because like what happened with the M&A stuff actually was pretty random. So I was bumming around and then I got a call from a friend of mine who works at a, a Sort of a consulting firm out of Chicago. He's like, hey, man, can you go to Florida next week? I was like, Why why would I go to Florida next week? And he says I will pay you like 15 grand for four days worth of work. I was like, okay, fair enough Yeah, and so I went and so basically did a bunch of initially technical diligence work for private equity funds buying like middle market e-commerce Mm. Uh, companies so they'd have us come in take a look at like their tech stack their you know their marketing stack all that stuff to make sure they weren't buying a dud or, or, or fraud which occasionally we ran across um and so what ended up happening then was uh you know you you hang out with the same pe guys all the time these are the pe guys by the way who told called me a liar when i said that uh, gross margins is 80 to 90 percent on p2b side of businesses but they were <laughs> like hey man like we'll pay for deal flow you know like i was like what what is it what does that mean I don't understand what. Because <laughs> yeah, we would buy a company, you know, we'll, we'll give you a cut. I was like, sweet. <laughs> so I did a couple of those and then, um, sort of in and out, I had two sort of main networks in and around microconf, the, the bootstrap software conference, and then the YC alumni network, which is now pretty large. And so after I did that, a couple of times people started reaching out and saying, Hey, I have this offer. Is this a good offer? What do you think? And then I, Give them my opinion, whether they I thought that was a shit offer or a good offer. And then from there, people started saying, Hey, we're considering selling. Will you run the process for us? And sort of I was like, all right, I guess. And then one of my PE friends was like, Oh, so you're an investment bank. I was like, I'm a what now? Yeah. (laughs) He just figured it out. Yeah, yeah. So I he figured it out before I did. So I was like, (laughs) Oh yeah, I guess I should uh, posture in that way. So so yeah, that's sort of how I stumbled into that. And then really what happened was being exposed to that, I saw you know, more and more of these, the sort of institutional money, uh, moving down market in terms of realizing how valuable these SaaS businesses are. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the valuations going up for businesses, you know, say north of a couple of million ARR. Yeah. And that's, you know, that combination was like, Oh, okay. And at the same time, you know, people, we were sort of assuming they were worthless unless they were unicorns <laughs> right. and so started doing those kind of deals. And then that's when I, uh, you know, pinged Rob and said, Hey, you know, no one's really funding the very early stages of this. Like, you know, companies that, yeah, they may become unicorns who, who knows. Um, but realistically like nobody's funding, you know, uh, you know, a company that maybe the goal is to sell for a hundred million dollars or $50 million. So that's sort of the, and sort of there wasn't much of a plan put it that way
0: <laughs> it just kind of stumbled upon you and now you now you're i'm assuming you're enjoying it and between the two yeah it's fun
1: it's certainly yeah. you know it's less work to be an investor than to be a an entrepreneur 100
0: yeah, so. 100%, yeah. yeah. You know, um what would you say is the most common reason so other than you know let's you know, say revenue you know b2b SaaS. any other reasons why you turn down an offer to invest in a SaaS company or accept them into our your accelerator program
1: um so there's we had so many applications that we actually turned down an awful lot of companies that we would have liked to invest in. So, I, I actually don't know. I think you probably would have like the the, the long term goal is to invest in hundreds of companies a year. Yeah. Um. But, and so even just out of the last batch, I probably would have liked to invest somewhere between fifty and seventy five companies. We just don't have the infrastructure and the funding to do that yet. Um. But yeah, there isn't really like a a red flag that sort of stands out to me. Um i think i think the one thing that i probably have as a sort of a hang-up with a founder is that there there's a certain type of founder who tends to make sort of mountains out of molehills like they they sort of tend to just like if there's a speed bump they sort of like have to stop and like really observe the speed bump and like measure the total height of the speed bump
0: (laughs) instead of just running through
1: it. yeah versus like uh, that kind of personality i think can is not particularly helpful particularly early on like i feel like just the pedal to the metal and just let's see how it goes is often is often more beneficial and so i think that's probably one of my main sort of hang-ups as it relates specifically to founders but honestly the, the the sort of set of industries we invest across is so large that it there isn't really like a personality trait or uh kind of industry that we like you know if you're doing b2b SaaS in an industry that's big enough and you seem like you understand that industry and you you have some sort of advantage um just of some random dude we're probably going to be interested
0: so i saw you so you guys selected i think it was around 12 or or so for for this batch you would have liked to do you know 50 or 75 can you share some of like the numbers or how are you kind of ranking that is it you have yourself like a ranking system it's like okay these are just absolutely phenomenal and and these 40 are like uh maybe next time or
1: yeah, it's it's. We have a bunch of different ways we look at it. Um, I mean, certainly, like you know, traction is always the thing. Like, if you were two thousand MRR eighteen months ago and you're still at two thousand MRR, I'm gonna be like, what are you, what do you, what, what, why, you know, what's going on here? Mm. And it could be something reasonably straightforward. Uh, you know, maybe they're working full time for a job and it's just like, mm, we didn't have any time to answer sales calls. <laughs> In which case, we might still be interested. Um, but certainly you come to us and says, hey, you know, we were at eight thousand MR last month, we're at fourteen thousand MR this month, we're gonna be like, no oh, interesting. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, we don't we don't really have a very strong like effectively the way that we think about our fund to a degree is that it's almost like indexing into that early stage of that market. Like we believe that um sort of outcomes in this sort of in what we call the independent SaaS market is uh parallel distributed very similarly to more traditional venture. And, and we think that, um, you know, investing broadly in a market like that is, is beneficial in terms of fund development.
0: Makes and, and most of these uh, startup founders are usually typically one founder or two co-founders, or more, I think it's
1: 50, 50 one and two, one
0: and two, yeah, yeah. I think uh, yeah, I find that, that sweet spot of like a tech and a, and a biz dev guy seems to be, you know, work really well, but I don't know if you see differently
1: yeah no i i did that it depends what you're doing like if you're doing high touch stuff i like to see more sales some some sales experience Mm. um if you're more b to not b to c but like more prosumer than someone with marketing chops it's probably more worthwhile Mm. um but then again like we have some teams that are purely technical and they, they they do fine like it's not what we what we tend not to do is entirely non-technical founders. Like if there's nobody who can write code, that's usually then we usually look quite long and hard at that. But we've done that too.
0: Just depends on the, the skill of the founder. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. If you were, you know, hypothetical question, you know, if you were to go back and uh, start as a an entrepreneur again, or you know, you're in this the foots of the these founders, you have a thousand dollars looking to start an MVP today you a know, new startup, how do you research, you know, the right idea and then how would you best invest that capital?
1: Um, so I'm going to cheat out of this question. You sure. should just go to you should just go to MicroConf and we just released uh, MicroConf video Vault, and it includes a bunch of tracks. And one of them is like pretty much how to come up with the perfect bootstrap SaaS startup. OK, and so that's what I would do.
0: OK, Okay. No, that's perfect. <laughs> I would just
1: watch those because there's some really phenomenal uh, Talks out of there. One of the uh, one of the main ones is uh, I don't remember his Twitter handle now. Um, Jason, good lord, he's the founder of WP Engine. Can't blank you on his name, Jason something. Sorry, Jason, forget your last name. <laughs> um, and he basically he just did an amazing talk I guess four or five six years ago about like, you know how to get basically how to get a start how to get to ten thousand MRR with okay. your business your b2b SaaS business and it's like there's a bunch of videos around that's one of them and there's a couple of others around idea validation pricing and stuff that i think it's just almost like so the one, maybe 102 version of how to do bootstrap b2b SaaS businesses
0: okay we'll put a, a link to that in our in our show notes so people can check that out um last question here this has really been this has been great what, what are you most excited about or curious about at the moment or where do you plan to focus your efforts for for 2020
1: I'm I'm the most excited about when we get a vaccine for COVID nineteen. So <laughs> my kids can go back to school and I don't have to homeschool them. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a miracle that they haven't come running into my office while we're recording this. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: Um. So that that's probably my main thing. Um, we're also about to start fundraising for fun for our fund too, which uh, it's it's uh, let's call it interesting timing. <laughs> yeah. So um, so that that'll be my main focus, um, you know, going forward. Probably self launching that in May or maybe June.
0: Cool. And if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how can they uh, get in touch or, or learn more?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, if you if you want to look at Tiny Seed and, and potentially invest in Tiny Seed, then um, check out. Uh, Tinyseed.com slash invest. If you fill out that form, then I'm the one who's probably going to be responding to you. Uh, personally, I rage on Twitter at, uh, at Einar Walshut. um And I'm, I'm, I have a pretty unique name, so I'm, I'm reasonably easy to find if people want to ping me.
0: Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Einer. I'll I'll add that to our show notes so people can get a hold of you. It's really good. Appreciate it. Perfect. All right. Thank you all for joining us on today's episode. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a comment on iTunes or Spotify. If you'd like to learn more about entrepreneurship, make sure to check out our School of Startups videos on YouTube as well. Until then, see you guys on the next episode.